Yes, hello, Tyler S. O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bazaar Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. There's a lot to like in this story. It's getting more ridiculous as it goes on. The hunt for the weirdest. What are you talking about? Are you serious? What? So many questions. Okay, I'm going to have to stop you here. <laughs> Strangers. This is a masterpiece of stupidity. It's going to get stranger and stranger. I'm quite exhausted. Most unbelievable. If you rate this as a movie, people wouldn't believe Stories it. Stories to ever occur. An epic tale of woe, joy, nutty behaviour. The fact that it's not more well known is just the strangest. In the world of sports. This is going to get juicy here, isn't it? We should open a window or something. (laughs) Sports Bazaar. How many testicles did he have? Eight. (laughs) Found running naked down a major street in Chicago. (laughs) This, of course, is the last time organised crime and boxing have crossed over. Got up in a press conference. We're here to announce we've swapped our wives. What is going on? It's time for the leaders of the hunt. Not household names for me. Surely a red flag. It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of Sports Bazaar. I'm Mick Malloy, and of course, I'm joined, as always, by Titus O'Reilly. Titus, what are you bringing to the table this week? Well, Mick, we love a doping scandal. Do we ever? (laughs) We've been involved in a couple. (laughs) So this is one of my all-time favourites. Okay. The sport is football slash soccer, depending where you're listening from. It's arguably one of the strangest of all time, and at the time it was a huge issue and then mostly forgotten. Like okay. most people today wouldn't even know about Recent, it. Recent. Uh, so we're going back to the, the interwar period, so the 30s. Okay. So when I was born. And <laughs> we begin with the name. When that suit was fashionable. <laughs> we begin with a guy by the name of Frank Buckley. And Frank Buckley's born in Manchester in 1883. Okay. And he goes to school in Liverpool. He excels in sport early on. He's an office clerk and he is finally persuaded by his family that he should join the army, which he does. Is a war looming? <laughs> no, uh, are they well, trying they, to get him out of the house? I think what, what's they, the... No, World War One hadn't happened yet. So he this was before World oh, War One. Okay, so I think me. they weren't quite as Pardon me. I'll it seemed like me. a sensible idea at the time. <laughs> turned out not to be. Okay. So he joins the army and he's still playing while he's in the army. And he was very good in the Manchester Regiment. He was so good that they kept uh, playing him even while in the army. The army played him in their teams and it looked like he was going to go off to the Boer War, which is, you know, one of my favourite wars. Ah, But instead they, the army sent him to Ireland, slightly less dangerous. To do what? Just peacekeeping, which means oppressing the Irish. (laughs) (laughs) But he he was so good at football, even when he was doing in the army, they were mainly just getting him to play football for them sure. in their teams. There's a bit of a ring in. Yeah, and to the point where in 1902, Aston Villa actually said to him, we'll p- help you arrange to buy your way out of the army to come play for us professionally. Okay. So he suddenly has a career. He goes Aston Villa, then he goes to Brighton, goes to Hove Albion, he goes to Manchester United and Manchester City all in six years, mm. moving around. And then he finally ends up at Birmingham and he plays a fair bit there and then he goes to Derby County and he becomes quite good. He plays one game for England. And he's seen as quite a good player. But then suddenly the First World War breaks out. Yep. He's back in the army. In the war he ends up fighting in the Battle of Somme and gets injured. 
gets sure. um, mustard gas on his lungs and gets shot, which yep. is not what you want. Um, so football, by the time the war ends, is sort of over for him. He, his running yeah. is never quite the same. He's been injured. So he, he comes back. He's been promoted during the war to the rank of major. And from this point on, everyone just calls him major, including his wife. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I would love Better than to, Captain. One of the guys, Captain. those people in life who even their wife calls them by their nickname, basically. <laughs> so the, the major is. Sarge. In, it's better than Sarge. I know. It's, it's your wife. Come, come home, your wife goes, hello, Sarge. It would be even worse if you just only got to being a private. Has <laughs> she stripped you of rank? Yeah. Stripped you of rank? <laughs> Start off as a colonel, then you went to a sergeant. Now, yeah, yeah. She, he comes late, late from the pub. Well, 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 where have you been, Lance Corporal? <laughs> <laughs> so he decides to come back and after the war and in 1919 he decides to go into coaching because he can't really play anymore. That makes sense. Makes sense. He joins Norwich City. Uh, they're very excited to have him there. He... Instantly overhauls training regimes. Well, what level are they at? Well, this was just the football league at the time. So oh, okay. before the Premier League, I mean, they started to have different divisions, but sort of at the top level. And he was, from his military career, he was seen as a real firm leader. Like a drill A drill sergeant. Major, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But after a year at Norwich where he starts to do quite well, they can't afford him and he can't afford to stay. So he goes off for three years to be a travelling salesman. But okay. finally after three years... Blackpool approach him and they appoint him as manager. And at this time is when he really starts to coach in a really high level. He changes Blackpool's jersey to an, their now iconic orange colour. Yep. So they play in full orange because he wanted the locals to notice them because they weren't <laughs> really followed that much. He brings in this sort of authoritarian coaching style. He brings men that likes his players to tears through yelling at them. Right. Sort of, you know, the Alex Ferguson hairdryer <laughs> goes directly <laughs> back to, they'd say, the, gotcha. the major was the one that really brought this in. He is everything about winning. That's all he cares about to the point where the Blackpool faith will get annoyed with him. They say, yeah, we win, but it's the most boring football you can imagine. Okay. Um, and they complain a lot. He starts to experiment with things, what they call pep pills, which is amphetamines. And he gives them to his players. The old pep pills. The old pep pills. So he starts giving amphetamines to his players. And this isn't uncommon at the time. So other teams such as Arsenal also did it. They gave their players amphetamines. The Arsenal players didn't like it because after they played a game, they found they were very energetic on the pitch but didn't really score. But there's a lot of running. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then they they said and they didn't know what was in it, right? So they were taking stuff like equivalent of like ecstasy and amphetamines and stuff. Yes. But they didn't know what was in it at the time. Right. In their diaries and letters and reports afterwards, they say things like, Oh, after the game, we hit the town and all we could drink was water. We just couldn't <laughs> get drink enough. We were so thirsty. Uh, you know, which is like yeah. being at a rave, but they sure. didn't know. So where are they, they getting these pills from? Early bikers, you know, those, those bikers with the sidecar. Penny Farthings. Penny Farthings. Penny Farthings. So the Germans started producing a lot of this stuff. So these were sort of well known. Done. There's yeah. a chemistry and it wasn't a lot of regulation around sure. this stuff at the time. So he, he does okay at Blackpool, but finally in 1927, the board of the Wolverhampton Wanderers, they advertise for someone and they like the look of him because yeah. he's suddenly known as this Tough guy with eye for detail, innovative approach, and a win at any cost kind Gets of thing. results. They're also broke. So their ad in the Athletic News for a coach, the whole headline was a spendthrift is not needed. 
like because they had no money. Okay. So he joins and his first few years, he's basically not even trying to win. He's trying to get them out of debt. So they're £14,000 in debt. They're losing about £1,500 every year and they've barely got anyone coming in the door to pay right. for things. So they're in real trouble. So he does this thing where, and this was a lot of the managers at the time, he just becomes a horse trader. So he finds really talented youngsters. Yep. Builds them up and sells them for a massive profit. Okay. But the minute they start to get good, he's selling He's selling them off. On, yeah. So the team's not getting any better, but not the bottom line right. is being addressed. Yeah. Between 1935 and 38, the club's income from transfer plays was £110,000 and he had bought them to a profit of £68,000. So that was his. So okay. once he's done this, they board suddenly says, well, this guy can just run the place. Like, yeah. Money-wise, player-wise. So he gets this huge amount of power over the entire place. They then start to have some success because Buckley's coaching is not like other coaches. And you got to remember at the time in the early 30s, when he started coaching, players were often during the week when they trained weren't given the ball because it was believed it would make them more hungry for it when they played on the weekend. So they trained without a ball and then... It's like baiting a dog or something. <laughs> what are you trying to do? But like, the problem was when they got the ball in a game, they didn't know what to do with it because they hadn't, <laughs> they're not practising kicking. And not only are they not training, mm. they're not doing fitness stuff. And there's all this beginning to be nutritional science, but at the time they're not really understanding of sure. what it is. It's a bit wrong. So yeah. George Allison of Arsenal, who was a doctor. Science is a bit of a stretch. Yeah, it's and not, he, yeah. he was playing at the ripe old age of 30, which at the time, I mean, I think you die at 40. <laughs> That's right. So he's That's 30, he's still playing at Arsenal, George Allison, and he, they're asked, what steps should a football player uh, take to keep playing to your ripe old age? And he said, I suggest cutting out tea and coffee and drinking milk instead or water. He said, it's not easy to give up tea and coffee. This is the same kind of physical or chemical difficulty that one finds in giving up cocaine or any type of dope. Yeah. Keep doing those, by cocaine. the way. Yeah. Keep doing those, yeah. but give up tea and coffee. He said, there is a time for low spirits or depression, but in time, this is, he says, if you give up tea, you, you sink into depression. But he says, but one becomes as fond of milk as other men are of beers. Milk drinkers can play in the hottest weather without the least inconvenience. <laughs> so he says, just... Just drink milk. It's a good ad for and milk. Nothing else. Good ad for milk. James Marshall, he played for Rangers. He was also a doctor. Okay. And so he came out and said, when they asked what's the best thing for players to have before a game, he said champagne. It's a <laughs> producer of energy and it's the safest of all the stimulants. <laughs> He said oh, it's it, got a kind of chariots of fire feel to it, doesn't it? He said oh. it acts at once and leaves no harmful effects. Wow. Um, it dulls the sense of fatigue so that the player feels refreshed and reinvigorated. The sparkle of the wine and the instinctive belief that it is doing him a power of good work works upon his imagination so that he steps out of the dressing room ready to win any match against any odds. So that's his first bit of advice, champagne. Break out the champagne. You're going to love this guy. He then says... I want to play for him. He then talks about the benefits of smoking. Okay. Off. Off. Says, I'm going to write this down. He says it's wise for the man who smokes his 25 or 30 cigarettes a day... Good Lord. ...not to give it up entirely before an important match. He would say it'd be harmful if you did that. Yeah. He said the man who smokes his modest 10 a day, mm -hmm. he might want to just reduce it to about five during the season a day and that you'll get used to that. He says, I wouldn't advise the heavy smoker who's an athlete to give up his smoking entirely just before a big physical effort. Equally, a cigarette will steady the nerve of many an excited footballer. 
So this is they're drinking champagne and smoking before matches if they're not on amphetamine. So this is <laughs> this is what's going into this. Close smoke rings like Beckham. <laughs> That's, That's what right. I'm thinking. So when he joined Blackpool originally, it was reported in the newspaper. They yes. said a pleasing feature of the training is that the manager dons the jersey and joins the boys in giving them advice and practical demonstration of what to do and how to do it. This was seen as a revelation. <laughs> But demonstrating what it is you wish to be done. Yeah, this was okay. like he—he he was the first yeah, to do this. Pushing this the like, envelope. You know, people who start early at stuff, the basics seem yes. revolutionary. He—he <laughs> he was like that. He held practice games on Friday afternoon before the game, where he gave him the ball. So the people were like, "Wow!" Like people coming like an intra club game. Yeah, with and, a ball. Yeah, and people were like, "This is amazing!" Like this is you know. They also were incredibly fit. So he was all about the cutting edge of physical condition. So he took him to the seaside for long runs, up and down the, you know, the dunes. He was the first to do that. Fitness camps in army style barracks he did and all that sort of stuff. Between cigarettes. Between cigarettes. So fit were his men that before every home game he'd flood the pitch so that it was tiring to run on knowing it would tire out the opposition before these guys because they were fit. He did it every single game. He also taught them to be incredibly tough and didn't mind them sending opposition players off injured. Yep. So he actually said it's easier to play against 9 or 10 than 11. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where there were so many red cards that one year the FA Council, Football Association, let, didn't let them go on a European tour at the end of the year because they were so – but Buckley didn't care. He's like, we will That'd be a lesson. Yeah. He no. brought in mechanical innovations – as well, he had a rowing machine, which was like no one had a rowing yep. machine. He had a machine purpose built that fired out footballs at different angles <laughs> for players to control. <laughs> a room under the stand was fitted with rubber walls, which players kicked the ball and it would return at unpredictable angles so they had to, to react He's to it. ahead of his time. Yeah. He took delivery of an electric horse, which was a moving platform on which the players stood, holding onto rubber handles for dear life as the machine vibrated and tried to knock them off and he said this this really helped with their thing. He also took them, made them go to psychologists. So this is in the he 1930s. He is ahead of the curve. Yeah, this so he's is... like, I want you to go to the, the psychologist to improve your confidence. One of his strangest practices was to encourage all his players that had to go ballroom dancing. <laughs> <laughs> and for what end? Because he believed were, uh, it made them more agile and, and fit. Hand-eye foot coordination yeah, he, he, or something. he thought or, it made you much more, your balance better, everything better. And, and what was his preferred dance? Well, was it, the foxtrot. The foxtrot, not the cha-cha. <laughs> he also believed, he did this to the point. Paso Doblo. Well, he did it to the point where he would sometimes insist that the players would dance with each other at training. <laughs> So as I was sending him out to do ballroom dancing, he'd say, right, guys, gather around. Gonna... As he wet the pitch, are they are they splashing around in mud just to make it harder because it's Can you imagine modern footballers being told, right, no. guys, you're all going to pick a partner and we're going to dance. We're going to do the tango. Everybody, we're going to do the nut push. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Hang on. So the players are going to training and so you imagine a scout turns up and goes, I'm going to see what makes these guys yeah, tick. Yeah, Why yeah. are these guys better than everyone else? Yeah. And he turns up and, and they are dancing all with each other. like dipping each other yeah. with a rose between the teeth <laughs> going, what the hell? <laughs> so this is I like, like this guy. So you've got to be like other coaches aren't even giving their players a ball to play mm. with. They're not doing yeah. it. This guy's got machines. 
He's got ballroom dancing. He's got psychologists. Like it's the modern coaching setup with some peculiarities. Who do the Gatsby style the dancing? 30s. Is that is that on the menu? <laughs> he doesn't care if Flappy. they win or lose, but he really wants, he really wants them to just be able to like, guys, your timing is all off. <laughs> Okay, this is fantastic. Um, He also insisted, even the goalkeepers, that they all had to be able to be proficient at kicking on both feet. The goalkeepers? Even the goalkeepers, all players. Because he believed that opened up the game more. You you didn't need to get back onto your left or your right foot. You should be good at kicking on both. It was made you a much better team. So in practice matches, he'd play right wingers on the left wing and vice versa just so they couldn't play to their normal strengths. And he'd do that on purpose in practice matches so they would do that. He also set up a youth academy. So you know how Manchester United have the famous youth academies this and everything. This is incredible. Yeah, this is in the 30s, right? What are the, what are the other teams doing at these? They all they copy. They kick. all start to copy him. But at first, no, they were, yeah, a lot of them were just doing. He was quite far ahead. He set up this youth academy, recruited boys of about 15 and 16. They would trial 100 at the start of the season. They would then pick about 15 of them and they would join it. He then got a hostel for them to live in, um, which he helped purchase to put them in and had recreational medical facilities. They would live there and train all the time. Yep. He then um, kept them on a very short leash. He had organised for the whole city of Wolverhampton, had spies everywhere. So if they went to the pub or broke curfew... It would always get back to him. So he would basically organise it. He organised a network of This spies. is incredible. Yeah, so he was like right against it. And that led Manchester United, all these other teams in the years that followed, all copied this yep. youth academy. This so becomes the blueprint. This is the blueprint. Now, all this innovative stuff is kind of amazing. Mm. And you get a sense of this guy. He's like a, he's incredibly tough, looks after the young guys and everything too. He's doing everything to make them the best. But his win-at-all-costs mentality means he's willing to try. He's on the cutting edge all the time. Sure. Brings us to the key bit, which is his most innovative, which was his program of injecting players with a liquefied form of monkey testicles. Okay. (laughs) All right. Now, this was bound to come up at some (laughs) stage, this this topic of conversation. Can you repeat what you just said to me, please? So one of the things he does... (laughs) (laughs) Is <laughs> he brings in a, a new program of injecting players with a liquefied form of monkey testicles? And where's he injecting them? In their arms. In well, their yeah, arms. So let's. Can I just stop you for a second? Don't act like you've never done this. <laughs> <laughs> I was with you with the ballroom dancing. I'm with you with the academy. Yeah. I'm with you wetting the ground. You're going. This guy's ahead. He's really pushing the envelope. Yeah. I like his style. Yeah. It's innovative. Good. I'm drawing the line <laughs> at injecting your players with a liquefied form of monkey testicle. Really? Yeah. I, I look. Jury, oh, look. Jury's out. <laughs> see, hey. see where this goes. Yeah. Look, before but, you, wow. you know, Jay, quick to. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Well, perhaps it would go best if we go back a little bit. Sure. Him trying this is at the end of a long trend in sort of medical innovation. Okay. Or ex- uh, more medical experimentation. We've moved on from amphetamines, haven't we? I mean, that seemed to be that at least is still around, right? Like, so if you go back in time, so that you got to remember to the end of the nineteenth century, you know, up until the Second World War, yeah. it's, it's a huge time for science and medicine and experimentation, right? And they're 
They're not getting everything right. They're trying new but things. But they're prepared to give it a go. There's not a lot of regulation. There's not a lot of rules. Not a great time to be a monkey, yeah. it sounds like. I no, think probably on the receiving end science, of a lot of science. I think there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's never a good time to be the a monkey. The monkey's had a bad run. Yeah, monkeys. The, the, are, the monkey has more than pulled its weight in the experimentation yeah. department. And here they're really pulling their Same weight. with those rats with the ears attached. You know, oh, those mice oh, with the ears attached. Oh, the ears under their I don't bag. get it. What's that about? Their hearing's amazing. <laughs> So the idea of using testicles in some way to boost your manhood is, yeah. is not an original idea back in. So going back, you know, there's been tiger penis soup. Mm. There's been like in Chinese medicine, there's been like using the penis or the testicles in some sort of form to sure. try and grow, grow, grow your manhood, manhood is not a new idea at the end of the 18th century. It's been around Forever. And is a delicacy in some countries. And is, and is a delicacy, but it's always been linked or is to it, virility. Or is it? Is it just something that <laughs> foreigners <laughs> make you do? Oh, try yeah, try like, this donkey penis. Yeah. Oh, it's a real delicacy here. Where do you do it? <laughs> yeah, it's like when people come to Australia. Well, we're always eating koala. Why <laughs> can't <laughs> I just, just ate a monkey penis? <laughs> All right, it's all always right. tied up to virility and fertility and all this sort of stuff. So even though, you know, it might be a delicacy, it's still always seen as... And this idea begins to come in toward the end of the 19th century that the ability to use animal testicles in some way to enhance, to ward off ageing, make you feel young all the, and, yeah. and virility and all these things. So there was a guy called Charles Edward Brown uh, Sickard and in 1889, he injected himself under the skin with extracts from ground-up dog and guinea pig's testicles. Yep. And he thought this might r reduce ageing because these hormones would help. And how'd it go? It didn't really work. Rather than everyone going, yeah, it didn't work because it's a stupid idea. <laughs> Others went, you know, there might be something in this. Maybe I can help here. So there was a Greek physician, uh, Skevos Zeros, 1875 to 1966, he was inspired by there was an Ottoman ruler who had a taste for testicle soup. He believed that this <laughs> did have some, you know, That's bound to, to have a hair in it. Yeah, but to make Excuse you, me, waiter, there's a hair in my testicle soup. There's more than I've one. Been, yeah, I've been bigging it out of my teeth all dinner. Um, I still prefer that to broccoli soup. You know what I mean? That... <laughs> Do you want the broccoli soup or the testicles? I'll take the though? testicles. Okay, <laughs> so, all right. Who's having this? So uh, Zeros, an Ottoman leader. He was inspired by the Ottoman leader. This is Zeros, the Greek physician. Get croutons. Would you put croutons? <laughs> Just to give it some soup. crunch. Get the big pepper grinder out. <laughs> all right. I don't. I prefer not pepper. I like to really be able to taste the testicles. <laughs> oh, there, there's a grab for <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> Just blowing on it. <laughs> it's a bit hot. <laughs> oh it's going to get a lot worse. Sorry, I'm just stupid. Yep. So our Greek physician, um, Skevos Zeros, he decides that rather than this is all a bit unscientific, so what he thought he'd do is I'll translate uh, the gonads of young rabbits and dogs into older ones thinking it might make them young again. Right. And yep. he thinks because this is why I do injections and stuff, you can transplant the actual chemical factory into directly into these older dogs but from younger animals and, yeah. and rabbits and you'll get this reaction. What animals? Well, he was using rabbits and dogs at first. It'd be strange for the dogs who <laughs> they're all, are notoriously uh, love to lick their own balls. <laughs> all of a sudden you'd be going, hang on a second. I don't think anyone. What the hell? Somebody, hey, 
Did I miss a meeting? That's not. <laughs> They're not mine. That's not. Um, the hell? So in 1910, it said in the book I read, he takes the next logical step. You and I might argue, is it logical? Right. He implants the test of an ape into a man, and he claims this is a miracle cure for impotency and senility. So when you say he implants it, is he? He takes like, it. He castrates the man. Takes the, man, takes, the uh, takes it from an ape. Ape. Yeah, and then yeah, and then puts it into a man. Or attaches it to a man. To a man, right? And <laughs> he. Cl- Hi, honey, I'm home. How was your day? I've got a. You know, I can't believe. To me. You don't believe I feel great and I can lift a car. <laughs> and I can get me a banana. <laughs> and uh, I got something I got to this, show you. Got this powerful urge to power my chest. Um, <laughs> so word spreads of this and goes, <laughs> and the idea gets traction that people think this works, right? They start to think grafting on testicles. But how did that work? Well, he just well, he had a good it, he had a good result. He, well, he says it's a good result, right? Like, there's a lot of belief here that the placebo effect is is kicking in. So yeah. people think, oh, I'm going well here. So word spreads of this, and the idea gains traction. There's an American called G. Frank Lidston. Uh, he lived from 1858 to 1923. He publishes a paper in the esteemed Journal of the American Medical Association yeah. in 1916, describing the benefits of transplanting the testicles of healthy young men. Two teenagers that had died in a car accident, he then harvested their testicles and put them into an older older man. And he says in this paper that this was amazing and had revitalised these older men and said this is a great thing to the point where he believed in the procedure so fully that he had the operation performed on himself as the recipient, not the donor. (laughs) Can I say this? I'm an organ donor. And I'm happy to donate organs. I don't know about the testes. I, you know, there's... All I'm seeing is, you know, someone arriving at a hospital with the esky <laughs> going, going very... into the emergency ward. It's all right. We've got mixed testes. <laughs> Go for it. I just love the idea of your testes being put in a little esky and chucked on a helicopter. <laughs> there's an old what? guy who can what? be revitalised. <laughs> He believes so fully in it, he gets it done to himself. So this is human to human now. By the way, I had no idea that this was a thing at any stage of history. That testicle swapping was was a thing. Okay. Yeah. Is this this like covered? Well, it's in the American Medical Association journal. Like it's not. It was mocked by some, but it's it was a slow also... week down the lab, I reckon. Because <laughs> oh, um, in the past year, you know, you need someone to, like a transplant, you need someone to die to get their testes, right? Yeah. So, and if it was young men, you don't want old men's <laughs> testicles. Who does? Right, they, they just clack away like an executive toy. <laughs> so you want Once young you... men, right? Yeah, so, that's but they right. don't die as often. You need a tragic accident. So this Dr. Leo Stanley, though, he's lucky in a way in that he got access to a lot of young healthy dead men that have died in they executed prisoners because he works as the chief surgeon oh, don't at tell me the harvesting prisoner yeah, testicles San Quentin not State on. Prison not on and he is taking transplanted testicles from um, 20 dead young men and then implanting them into older inmates to do the testing and then he also relocates the gonads from deer goat and other wildlife into more than 600 Lifers, so prisoners that are in for life. He's doing these experiments <laughs> on them. They suffered enough. He describes his operations that he did in the end on more than a thousand men in all in a 1922 scientific paper titled An Analyst of 1000 Testicular Substance Implants. Very accurately. Yeah. 
Named. Sounds like some bedtime reading. He this. claimed that glandular relocations could improve epilepsy, asthma, and mm. acne. Okay. So, you know, there you go. Could you, like cosmetic surgery, could you go in and, like, choose? Were there, like, testicle models? Yeah, you know, could you go in and go, well, I, okay. I the deer's going to cost you this much? <laughs> Little parade? Could I see? I've only got $50. Well, you can have the rabbit. (laughs) It's like. Now, when it comes to testicular implants, the true star of all this, though, who was literally a celebrity in his time, was a guy called Serge Voronov. 1866, he was born, lived to 951. He was a Russian who immigrated to France. I mean, to say he's a doctor or a surgeon is probably... There's not a lot of regulations or training at the day. You just sort of say you are, right? What would it be called? Like a ball doctor? <laughs> like a, <laughs> ball a, doctor. a square surgeon. A square surgeon. <laughs> he becomes this superstar of it. In 1920, he decides you don't actually need the whole ball. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw this on an episode of House. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you just do a slice of the ball. So he does a two-centimeter slice of a chimpanzee testicle and puts into a man in 1920. And he says this is more efficient and economical. Why do the whole thing when you can just do single slices? It's less invasive. <laughs> and he becomes famous for this, yeah. like, and becomes insanely, insanely rich. He was like a plastic surgeon rich today. So, so he's slicing up the monkey testicles. Yeah. And he's putting them into a syringe and injecting. No, that, this one he's actually taking the sliver and then sewing it into your testicles. Okay. So just a sliver, right? All right. So his experiments, he becomes famous. E.E. Cummings, who's a poet and a writer, does a poem about it where he's described as the famous doctor who inserts monkey glands in millionaires. Ivan Berlin, famous songwriter, writes a song in a Marx Brothers film called The Coconuts, 1929. (laughs) It's called Monkey Doodle Do, the song. And it says, (laughs) in the song it says, if you're too old for dancing, get yourself a monkey gland. And this is where the monkey gland idea Irving Berlin could have used it. (laughs) <laughs> um, monkey gland, I would have thought. Bars in Paris serve drinks dubbed the monkey gland because it becomes this amazing trend. Right. So this is but it well doesn't known. have a monkey gland in it. No, it's, it's got just g- And we should bake this and drink it at some point. It's got gin, orange juice, grenadine and absinthe. That's the drink. It's called, and, they, and they serve that in bars called the monkey gland. Souvenir ashtrays bearing cartoons of startled monkeys hooting... <laughs> I'll bet they're startled. Hooting, no Voronoff, you won't get me, <laughs> are made and fly off. They just sell like hotcakes. Maybe that's why the monkey's always wearing a nappy in those <laughs> posters. He's <laughs> just had his balls removed. So literally it's well known that this guy's doing this. Like Everyone's having a laugh and celebrities, at a Yeah, celebrities are doing it. It's, it's huge. He is so rich he doesn't know what to do with all his money. He has a whole floor of one of the most expensive hotels in Paris as his home. Yeah. So he just buys the whole, rents the whole floor. He's making money so much that he can't do. He's called the monkey gland man in newspapers at the time. Um, (laughs) He's the monkey gland can. He has trouble getting all the monkeys at certain points. He moves on to the testicles of executed criminals into millionaires because only really millionaires can afford this when demand outstrips supply. So the prisoners get like a sort of last meal the night before they get their testicles sliced. Like asparagus. There's a point where they ban the hunting of the French who obviously have a lot of colonial possessions in 
parts of Africa at the time, they banned monkey hunting. So he for this reason, well, for lots of reasons, but that was one of them. He starts a monkey farm in Italy <laughs> to be out of harvest. Oh my god! <laughs> okay, I'm going to question anyone starting a monkey farm in Italy. My that's a red flag for me. That is a red oh. flag. So he's producing his own. Yeah, he's monkeys. producing his own monkey testicles and he's just using it like so he starts doing that. So he says stuff like he writes a book called Rejuvenation by Grafting and he just says that there's all these effects. It's not an aphrodisiac, but he says your sex drive will improve, you'll have better memory, you'll have ability to work longer hours, you might not have to wear glasses anymore. <laughs> no more of the you stop it, you'll go blind. Yeah. Because uh, he says it will improve the muscles around the eye. Um, you'll have a prolonged life, you'll live longer, all these things. He says it will get rid of mental illness and schizophrenia, but it's not called schizophrenia at the time. So he says all these things. Yes. By the early 1930s, over 500 men have been treated in France by a Volanoff. Like That's how big he's doing it. And it's people like there's an American guy who's called Harold McCormack who's the chairman of the board of the International Harvester Company. So captain of industry, huge company. He's uh, he's With quite open nuts. admitting I've done yeah I've I've had it done. It's amazing. So everyone is saying this is all amazing. And on the Italian Riviera, he's got this farm which is run by a former circus animal keeper. Oh, he's hired to run it. He also starts implanting monkey ovaries into women. <laughs> so he's trying everything and going well. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle writes a Sherlock Holmes <laughs> novel called The Adventure of the Creeping Man, which is based on Voronoff. Yeah. So, so he's that famous that everyone knows him. So this has been copied everywhere. So in America, they take this testicular surgery to a whole new level and way more money yeah. because they're Americans and they do it a lot more. What are they up to? There's a guy called John Romulus Brinkley. He's a Kansas doctor and he would broadcast his services on a radio station with the slogan, a man is as old as his glands. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, Jesus. now he, in fact, was not a doctor. He's a bombshell. He'd paid for his degree from a place called the Eclectic Medical University in Kansas for $500. Yeah. Good on him. If someone said to me, Where, where's your degree from? The Eclectic <laughs> Medical University. That $500 investment in his degree was a sound investment because he later charged $750 per surgery, which is equivalent now to $10,000. Yeah. For each surgery, he earned an estimated twelve million dollars by grafting goat testicles into gullible but desperate young American men. Unbelievable! His advertising pitch was that the treatments didn't work very w well on dim-witted men, but worked very well on intelligent men. Oh, God. That was his marketing. This is fantastic. <laughs> so, guys, sign me up. He was accused by a royal physician of being a charlatan and a terrible doctor, and this was all nonsense. So he sued the rival physician said, you know, this is defamation. The jury, the Texas jury voted against him, declaring that Brinkley should be considered a charlatan and quack in the ordinary well-understood meaning of those words. <laughs> so he brought the case and lost. And lost, saying, yeah. Saying, I'm not a charlatan. The jury goes, yeah, you, yeah, are. you are. So in, back in Britain, this is all happening across Europe and America. It's a big thing. In Britain, there's a bit more opposition to the treatment. So they've got more of... <laughs> Anti sort of, of pro-animal rights people in the early days of the movement, they're saying that, you know, the slaughter of monkeys to allow this is terrible and they've got MPs that are protesting it. The Breeders Association 
had been approached direct by Voronoff plans for the gland grafting onto British racehorses and they had said no and banned the it. Corgis. You could harvest corgi, corgi testicles. <laughs> no, no, that I mean, would be very British. There's also this thing where the, on the continent it seems okay, but the British start to look at it and say, well, we think this has got sort of racist overtones. Not that the British didn't mind being racist, but Voronoff used to say stuff like, bright children should be grafted, should have these glands of monkeys grafted on them when they're young yeah. so we can raise a race of people with greater physical and mental powers and create a super race of men of genius, he used to say. And the Brits okay. didn't really like that. The Europeans <laughs> were a bit more into that. Um, so this call for calls for a moratorium <laughs> on research and for science to look at this properly. But while this is going on, in 1937, the major, Frank Buckley, is approached by a scientist called Menzies Sharp. And Menzies had based a lot of his stuff, some say he was a student of Voronoff, but others are not so sure because he was a bit of a con man, um, this Menzies Sharp. Um, but he said, look, there's a way to improve performance and recovery time using monkey gland implantation, but this time with syringes rather than having to do the operation. Okay. But it was based off foreign offside. Not as invasive. It's more yeah, it's of a as modern. <laughs> but they, oh, at Jesus. the time, some scientists had started to look at this and worked out it was nonsense. But had, <laughs> <laughs> but had no way. Out, what they're onto well, it. Well, the one thing into it though that it did lead to is they did discover that the testosterone, which was a subset right. and, and didn't work in the way that they were doing it. Yeah. So the injections and the... But they, they were ultimately heading led, down a path. They were heading that, down a path yeah. that ended up working where if you isolate the testosterone, inject that in people, it has huge impacts and it's led to all the doping we've had ever since. But yeah. at this point, it's not really working. Yeah. But Menzies Sharp, he's a salesperson. So he sort of had developed through this. He was selling these elixirs. He was in Edinburgh, but he was selling it all across the UK. As soon as you say the word elixir, I'm thinking yeah. con man. Yeah, I'm thinking man. snake oil. Absolutely. This is this is red flags <laughs> yeah, everywhere. It's a, it's a I have an elixir. elixir. <laughs> it's a wonderful elixir for a man. So the major becomes intrigued by Sharp's proposal and decided, but says, before you give it to my players, I want to try it myself. And so he has like up to 12 injections over about three or four weeks. And he says, the major says he's astonished by the results. He said, the treatment lasted three or four months. Long before it was over, I felt so much benefit that I asked the players if they would be willing to undergo it. And that is how the gland treatment came into general use. So it was optional? Well, first it wasn't optional. So soon all the Wolves players are given this course of treatment over a six-week period where they're being injected every three or four days yeah. with this. Buckley says that some of the players gained weight and grew taller as a result of taking the treatment. Jeez. They ran out of monkey glands, so at some point they're using slaughtered cattle as a, 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 instead. Roadkill. <laughs> yeah, whatever animal we a can badger. get. Not everyone agreed to take part. Two players, Wolves, decided a guy called Dickie Dorset. <laughs> And Don, good on you, Dickie. Dickie Dawson says nut, and and <laughs> <laughs> and Don Bilton. They refused to undergo the gland treatment, which the major got very annoyed at. Bilton later called the sign with Buckley um, in the late thirties. He was instructed by Buckley to report to the medical room for gland injections. He said, "I'm sorry, sir, but I'm only seventeen and still under my father's guidance." He will not want me to have injections. Buckley told him that under his contract, he had to do as he was told. He refuses. Bilton's father comes down to see Buckley and they have a huge screaming row. Yeah. 
but eventually Buckley backs down. He says, Bilton says, Buckley was not pleased at all and I never did much good at Wolves after that. I wasn't. Yeah. I was persona non grata. Mm-hmm. It seemed that there was this belief that the Wolves players were getting a benefit. Now, they now think that was just a placebo oh, effect, but they seem to be going quite all right. Their performances seem to be going better and it became, it wasn't illegal, so there was a lot of, I'm quite open about they're running this program. Are they the only team that's doing this? Well, at first they are, but then one guy, a guy who played for Everton, Tommy Lawton, they lost 7-0 to Wills and they suddenly said, gee, these these things are really improving him. And he says that he tried to speak to his England colleague who played to, for Wolves, Stan Cullis, and he said, but he walked past me with glazed eyes and I just knew he was on the monkey glands. <laughs> so being on the monkey glands became... A euphemism. A euphemism to the point where I've read in some things in researching this in Scotland, in parts of Scotland, people still say, oh, he's definitely on the monkey glands, meaning on drugs. Yeah. But, yeah. And a lot of people don't actually know where that phrase, phrase comes from, from, but it's still used. Leicester City were beaten 10-1 by Wolves at this point. <laughs> so they complained to the Leicester uh, MP Montague Lyons and he demands the government conduct an investigation into the treatment. Wow. The Minister of Health rejects this request. And one of the Labor MPs suggests that given how good wolves are going, that the Conservative government should be put on a course of these injections. <laughs> this is in Parliament, they're saying this. The Football League, who were the, like the equivalent of Premier League at the time, overseeing all this, they carried out an investigation into it. They don't ban the injections, but they arrange for a memo to go around and be put on the walls of all the dressing rooms of all the clubs saying in England and Wales that players can take the glands but only on a voluntary basis. Voluntary basis. So they don't ban it. Has anyone had any adverse effects of this? It doesn't or? seem so, although then this is where other clubs say so Portsmouth, Tottenham, Fulham, Preston and Chelsea all begin to take them. They're on. Not all of them did well. In February 1939, 12 players from Chelsea volunteered to undergo the treatment. Um, but they get relegated, so they give it up. <laughs> they go, that's no good. Arsenal refuse outright to take it. Yeah. Um, the club d- trainer Tom Whitaker at Arsenal, they did some experiments and he claimed that it may help in the case if you're ill but has no effect on health. So he's not necessarily right, but he, that's yeah. his view. Others are dead against it. Harry Gosselin, who's the captain of Bolton Warriors, condemns the treatment. He says it's selfish and he says, if you're going to dope a set of fellows, I think that's pretty bad. He says you must be desperate. The 1939 FA Cup, though, would see the Wolves take on Portsmouth where every single player was on monkey glands and became known as the monkey glands final. <laughs> so everything played. I was there that day. <laughs> so every single person was on it. Now, it's alleged that the Wolves players were taking it intravenously through a needle that Portsmouth took a, had a sort of a dignity about doing it. They sipped the monkey juice from cocktail glasses. <laughs> Can I have a swizzle stick, please? <laughs> so they saw it very much as an elixir. Um, they're all open about it. Portsmouth wins 3 0. So, umbrella in the top of the. One <laughs> <laughs> of the curly straws. <laughs> um, oh, jeez. After the game, after Portsmouth win 3 0, they win the monkey. Portsmouth gl- won. Win, they win the monkey grand final. So they win the FA Cup 939. Jim Guthrie, who plays for Portsmouth, does a post-match interview with the paper and says, our glands were obviously better than theirs. <laughs> so there's no hiding. No, we're right. out and about. So this is known everywhere, huge issue, and kind of this FA Cup where everyone is on the monkey glands yeah. makes this a huge issue. Parliament comes out and says, we're going to investigate this. 
The British Medical Association comes out and says, we're going to investigate this. It's yeah. the biggest story of the day. Yeah. They're a bit late to the party, aren't they? The- a bit late, but they suddenly say, this is a huge issue. But it's 1939, not long after this, yeah. a certain German <laughs> decides to kick off World War II. Oh, he doesn't, he doesn't put them on the monkey, on the monkey put, glands, does Well, he? all the Nazis were on amphetamines when they did the Blitzkrieg. So it just gets forgotten. Parliament don't investigate. They've got other things. They're worried about saving the country. Yeah. The Medical Association, they're off to war and got other problems. And it's just never forgotten. Completely gone. It didn't come back after the war. It, it never really uh, comes back. The science of it all, and by that point after the war, amphetamines, steroids, all this, the chemistry has moved along and the under, and the medical understanding has moved mm. along so fast that we're getting into amphetamines, we're getting into the era of testosterone injections. No one's mucking around with monkey glands anymore <laughs> because... Postacoglu should have a look at this. <laughs> I just... The, they're playing the, like they're on the monkey glands in Celtic, yeah. So... Um, I can't believe any of what you've just told me. It was it's all, all totally... I was oblivious to this stage of scientific... <laughs> endeavour. <laughs> endeavour and experimentation. But, wow, um, it made some men very rich. <laughs> it uh, inspired a cocktail, which I think we should probably go and have I one I think now. we have to try the cocktail. Just to finish, Major Frank Buckley, when he passes away uh, quite a few years after this, I think it was in the late 50s, I think, he passes away. He's such a big presence that on the paper it just says the Major is dead when he mm. dies and people know what they mean. He is known as like the Alex Ferguson's of the world, all the, the Busby Babes at Manchester United, they're all influenced by everything he did. Yes. But the one bit that just gets left off the... <laughs> the father of... <laughs> is the monkey, monkey glands glands experiment. thing. So that, he got most of it right. <laughs> he got, he, he, got he was revolutionary in so many ways. <laughs> yeah, and, the yeah, Youth Academy, everything. And, 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 be and one, he, once he leaves, he sets this all up. He actually leaves Wolverhampton, but they have enormous success in the 50s um, under all the systems he's set up except for mm-hmm. uh, the war obviously interrupts his career at Wolverhampton. But still to this day, being on the monkey glands is still a saying in large parts. Of the There's a lot of monkeys running brain. around like, like the castrati. <laughs> just, without any genitalia. You know, it's, I'm willing to give it a go. One testicle. And that's the monkey One testicle doping scandal. Well, uh, I did not see that coming. <laughs> Uh, but you've given me lots to think about. <laughs> I can't thank you enough, Titus O'Reilly. Bazaar Plus is our members program that gives you extra content every single week. If you're interested, just follow the link in the show notes. Cheers. <laughs>